Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. We read, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Clearly, faith is absolutely vital. When it says, without faith, it is impossible to please him, that should be an intimidating statement. The idea that our desire to please God, that that could be completely pointless if there's not faith mixed with that, that it's actually impossible to be pleasing to God unless there is faith. It says, for he who comes to God, and isn't that what all of us long to do? We long to approach God. We want our life to be a journey in which we are constantly getting closer and closer to him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Clearly, faith is important. And if it's important, then it's important to get it right. We need to be able to get faith right. But faith has its counterfeits. Consider what we call counterfeit Christianity. We have a booklet by that name. Uh, consider what we call counterfeit Christianity and the things we know about counterfeit Christianity. Uh, Revelation chapter 13 tells us that, that the uh, false prophet looks Christ-like. You look at the figures who promulgate uh, false counterfeit Christianity. And in many ways, they're wonderful people. They seem very Christ-like in, in lots of ways. It's important to understand that when we're talking about this, this false Christianity, we're not accusing all the preachers of it out there of being terrible people. They sometimes seem very Christ-like. It doesn't change the fact that what they teach is a counterfeit. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we're told that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. He seems glorious and beautiful and what should draw you forward. That his ministers come across as ministers of righteousness. They come across as, as teachers of the good things of God. And again, it is a counterfeit. In Matthew chapter 4 and in Luke 4, when we read of the temptation of Jesus Christ by Satan the devil, we read of Satan using scripture. How bold is that, that you think you're going to somehow deceive the Son of God by using the very words that he inspired, and yet the devil does. The devil brings out scripture. It's very fascinating. Really, if you read the scripture, the words, of course, are true. The deception isn't in the words that the devil quoted. The deception is the context of the words, the, the subtle implications of what he was trying to achieve by quoting truly inspired words. It's a blessing to understand in the church that when it comes to counterfeit Christianity, the devil doesn't change everything. He doesn't completely transform everything into the opposite of what it truly is. Rather, he just taints it in small little ways. Mr. Armstrong used to have a wonderful analogy where he would say, you know, if you sit down at a beautiful banquet and there's this amazing food, maybe it's like a Thanksgiving feast for Americans and there's turkey and there's dressing that if someone wanted to kill you and they knew you're going to eat the whole, they don't have to poison everything. They just need to poison the cranberry sauce. Honestly, if it's me, I'm not going to eat the cranberry sauce. They just have to poison the stuffing, right? Uh, but if they know you're going to take the whole, they just have to poison a little bit. They don't have to poison everything. Sometimes in our vanity, we believe that we can sort through the meal and figure out the part that is poisoned and think we can somehow just consume the rest. The devil doesn't change everything. What he does with counterfeit Christianity is he makes it sound convincing. 
and satisfying. It feels very much like the real thing. But all effective counterfeits do. Now, if I wanted you to believe I was giving you $20 and it was a counterfeit $20, I wouldn't put Mickey Mouse's face, you know, as the president. And I wouldn't print it in red colors. And I wouldn't make it circular instead of rectangular. Worst counterfeiter ever, right? It has to look close to the real thing. Counterfeit Christianity in many ways feels like the real thing. That's how you can know sometimes some, some mainstream worldly Christians in your circles, perhaps at school or at work. And they, you start to wonder, well, what's so wrong about that, right? Because they're good people and they do good things. And so we have a booklet about counterfeit Christianity to help expose the little things that go unnoticed by so many. Well, the devil counterfeits many things about the real faith, including faith. The devil has a counterfeit faith. It feels very much like the real thing. It feels deep and it feels profound. It feels emotionally satisfying. In many ways, just like with counterfeit Christianity, counterfeit faith is similar to real faith. And those who sell it present often a collection of biblical passages that make it easier to swallow, that seem to support the product that they're trying to pass off. Again, all those things don't mean it's real, though. They mean it's a very good counterfeit. They mean it's a very good counterfeit. And yet when we rightly divide what they say and what they offer and the picture they propose in the larger context in which those who are selling us counterfeit faith tend to be speaking, when we rightly divide all that with the word of God, we tend to see it for what it is. And their version of faith is something that is a mile wide, but only an inch deep. It's not actually the real thing. Counterfeit faith effectively denies the richness of real faith and gives a shallow substitute that packages it in a way that makes it easier to consume. And it's dangerous. Just like if you had a $20 bill in your pocket. A counter, sorry, a counterfeit $20 bill in your pocket. It's dangerous in multiple ways. One, it deceives you. It makes you think you have $20 when you don't. And so maybe an opportunity to mow a lawn or something comes along where you could earn a real $20 and you pass it by. You don't take advantage of it because, well, I've already got $20. But it's also dangerous because there does come a time when you need $20. And you've had it all along and you pay it and it just doesn't pay the bill because it's not actually $20. When you need it, it fails you. And counterfeit faith is like that. Today we're going to look at some elements of shallow counterfeit faith. And then we're going to examine some biblical examples that help us to see the richer, larger picture and help shine a more accurate biblical light on that counterfeit faith. So we can focus on not building counterfeit faith in our lives, but the real, active, living faith of Jesus Christ. The title of the sermon today is The Shallows of Counterfeit Faith. The Shallows of Counterfeit Faith. Now part of why it's worthwhile discussing this topic is because we do encounter counterfeit faith in the world, and we need to be wary when we do. One of the worst things you can do in this world, I think, when it comes to being a true Christian, is to assume that the world is never going to get you. 
that you're just too smart for the devil, you're too smart for his deceptions, you're too smart for all of his trickery and such, and thus make yourself remarkably vulnerable to it. And we do encounter these things. I, I am going to name a few examples of extreme teachers of counterfeit faith here at the beginning. And I, I need to say, I'm trying to do this in the spirit of when, uh, say, Dr. Meredith would mention Billy Graham sometimes. Not to knock uh, Mr. Graham. He was an example of a good man with terrible doctrines. He just didn't understand. And one day he will. One day he'll have that opportunity. And so when I mention some of these names, I'm not mentioning to knock them as human beings. I just feel there is a benefit to understanding uh, real examples of some of the people that are out there, for instance, in the world as teachers of these things. Uh, one example, for instance, is Joel Osteen, who seems a really nice guy. I don't know him, right? Uh, but when he talks, it's, it's pleasant, and he's a good speaker. Clearly talented, if you've heard the man. Clearly has a great dental plan, uh, because he's got, he's got teeth I would envy. Sounds odd, like I want them in my pocket. But regardless, you know, he's just clearly, he's got a good smile and he seems to have a, a wonderful, happy disposition. Uh, if you have never heard of him, he's a pastor of a, a mega church in Houston. In fact, when we met, when I was in Houston just recently, we're only like 25 miles down the, down the road. Everybody could have left my sermon and gone to, and gone to his. Uh, and he's got a, a big TV following and he writes a lot of books and he is a preacher of what is uh, commonly called a, a prosperity gospel. Something I'm sure he would probably not agree with, though perhaps he would if he sees it as not a negative thing. And he's a part of what's often called the word of faith movement, which is generally this a very shallow view of faith when you really do look at it like we're going to talk about today. Another one is uh, Kenneth Copeland. Some of you may be familiar with Kenneth Copeland as well. He was, he, he was famous in 2020, uh, around March or so, for, for giving a sermon in which this was kind of the early days of the pandemic and he and some of his, I guess, elders or whatever they were, were on stage to, to uh, literally to kind of blow away COVID. And he literally blew with his mouth and he said, you know, the, the wind of God is, is wiping COVID away from this country. And I, I, I'm not trying to do him justice. I don't think I could. But regardless, it was, it was a lot of things that, you know, God, he was declaring that, you know, the words of your mouth, God, God is healing this. God is taking this away. It's not going to affect anyone. You know, uh, he's saying it's going to go away. It's going to be of no effect. He, he declared that vaccines would come almost immediately, which, it's kind of contradictory. If you've kind of cast it away and it's going to be of no effect, then why are you also saying, and so we're going to have vaccines for a disease I just got rid of. I don't understand. But regardless, it's, that's part of what these things are. They, they sound great, but as you dive deeply into them, you find out they really are sort of contradictory. And I'd say there, there's variants. They're sort of purveyors of the strong version in some kind of ways. There are weaker versions. And I will say that some of the quotes I'm going to provide later, they are the sources of, but not all of them. They're just two of the most prominent ones you might see, and I wanted to mention them as examples to just say there are real individuals out there. But it's honestly, you don't have to go to some, say, evangelical or Pentecostal worldly congregation to see some of this in action. If you have mainstream Christian friends at work or at school, like I mentioned, or some on Facebook that you interact with, you're probably going to be exposed to some of this more shallow take on faith, this sort of counterfeit faith. And it can fool us. Honestly, shallow faith makes for fantastic Instagram posts uh, and Facebook blurbs and the rest. It's just tailor-made for it because you can often boil it down into something that's just small uh, and easy. And things that aren't necessarily untrue, as we'll see. 
And if we're honest, it affects us sometimes. I know that I've picked up on it here and there over the years uh, amongst members in the church. I know myself that I have been impacted here and there uh, when I'm not really on guard like I should be. And sometimes you'll see the words and language of this sort of uh, shallow faith sort of creeping into our dialogue. And brethren, we have to be careful. Anytime we start sounding more like them than the rest of us, we need to take notice of that. In my words, when I talk about faith, when I talk about God, do I sound more like those people or do I sound like the brethren that I'm visiting with every Sabbath? Do I sound like the ministers that I hear from the lectern or read in the articles? If there is a strong difference there, we need to examine ourselves. Why that difference is there? Because I have known times, perhaps not all the time, when it is actually an indication that some of this other has crept in, some of this counterfeit. And I'll find myself sometimes using a phrase that I've heard a lot from, from one of these fellas or something. And I think, okay, where'd that come from? And how did I mean that? And it's worth examining that. It can sneak in. We have had over the years, uh, sometimes elders or ministers leave our flock preaching that kind of faith, this sort of shallow faith. I know of a, uh, some examples where someone followed one of those ministers out of the church. And then, lo and behold, a number of, I don't know how long it was, weeks or months or years, uh, talking to that person, come to find out that they've actually still a part of that particular group, but now they're also really into Joel Osteen. Have you ever read his stuff? It's, it's just so good, right? Well, why would that be? Because the shallow faith is shared, and the one has the potential to become kind of a gateway drug for the other, because the circles in that Venn diagram overlap a whole lot more uh, than at least in that case the individual I'm thinking of seemed to have in mind. So it's worth taking a look at. This shallow face sounds good, it feels good, but all counterfeits, if they are worth their salt in deceiving, sound and feel like the things they are counterfeiting. So what are some characteristics of counterfeit faith? I actually want to go through these as quickly as I can because I'd like to move on to the biblical examples. But I do feel it's worth talking about these characteristics to give you a sense of what I'm talking about if you don't really know or maybe you're not sure if you've heard any of this before. And I do want to recognize these characteristics will be a mixture of right and wrong. In fact, I'm going to say some quotes from some of these people. You're going to say, well, what's wrong with that? And the fact is there's nothing wrong with it. But when you hear it in a larger context, what is trying to be sold through the use of that? What is the larger picture? Some of these things are hallmarks of this, but it doesn't mean they're wrong in and of themselves. Just like when the devil quoted a scripture to, to Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 4. We don't scratch that verse out of our Bible. It's not so much that he said something false. It's what was the larger picture he was trying to sell Christ with that picture. The devil often works that way. All right, so, so some characteristics. I think we can get through seven pretty quickly. Uh, there's a frequent focus when it comes to counterfeit faith, at least the brand and flavor that I'm thinking of today, on unlocking the power of faith. Unlock the power of faith in your life or your friend's life or your dog's. And you unlock the power of faith. Now, 
what's wrong with that, right? There is faith. I mean, there's power in having faith. There absolutely is. And yet, when you really pay attention to such people, often they'll talk. They won't necessarily say, oh, it's unlock the power of faith. They'll say, unlock the power of God. They'll talk about God. They'll talk about Jesus. But you listen long enough and you find it is the power of faith. It's actually like treating faith like something worth worshiping on its own, in a sense, like a false idol. If you don't think it's possible to treat, I've mentioned this before, godly things as false idols, we can. It's possible. We start to treat them in almost a superstitious sense. There are those who treat the Bible like a false idol. And you talk to them and you start to find out they actually respect the idol as certain groups, for instance, of uh, uh, the Jews and such. will treat you know, their copies of their scriptures almost with more respect than they treat God. And it can become a false idol. I actually looked on our websites. I went to Google and searched on LCG, the LCG website and the Tomorrow's World website and looked for the phrase specifically power of faith and found it on Tomorrow's World nowhere. I couldn't, I mean, do a search better. Maybe my search was terrible, but I, I have used the internet before. I think I was doing it right. And I actually could not find on Tomorrow's World the phrase power of faith. On LCG, I found it in only one place. It was a title of one of Dr. Meredith's sermons. And that's how many years have we put out articles and such. Again, there's nothing wrong with talking about the power of faith. But you find a focus on it in these groups that press this kind of counterfeit faith. So that's just one characteristic. Another characteristic is an intense focus on not doubting that you will get what you ask God for. Not doubting that you will get from God what you've asked. And they'll marshal scriptures for that. And again, there's a seed of truth in this. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 23 and 24, I'm going through these very quickly. You please note them and look at them later. That's where Jesus Christ is talking about being able to toss a mountain into the sea. And he talks about how if you don't doubt, if you believe, if you believe that you receive the things you ask, you will. And that's cited frequently in support of this idea. Uh, where James talks about asking for wisdom and says, ask in faith with no doubting. That's James chapter 1 and verse 6. He is speaking specifically of wisdom in that verse, but still people do like to broaden it when they're talking about this. Ask in faith with no doubting. I've heard one of these promulgators of this say that God hates doubters. And... I just ask you to be honest with yourself. Have you ever doubted at some time in your life whether God is working with you or, or intervening in your life or, or involved with you? And what's it like to hear someone tell all of you, you know what, in that moment, God hates you. God hates that. You know, isn't that the first words that Jesus Christ said when doubting Thomas came along and he appeared to him and said, hey, Thomas, I hate you. Or you know what? Didn't he actually meet Thomas where Thomas needed to be met and helped him along? There's this focus. In fact, there's a story. And I, this actually doesn't go back to one of these preachers. This is actually something that was written about one of them said. But I've, I've, I've heard this many times. I actually had some very close friends 
years and years ago that were caught up in this kind of faith. And so it's a kind of talk I used to hear them say all the time and saw this rang true. But someone was writing about one of these particular preachers and noted that his wife had found a certain house that she loved. She began to pray that God would give her this particular house. Each time they'd walk by the house or drive by the house, they'd claim it as their own, knowing God was going to give them the house. And God did. Now, I'm not saying it's not it's that it's terrible to pray that God will, will grant you this house that you want. But that's not the focus. The focus is on if you don't doubt, God absolutely will. You can claim it as yours because it's already yours. The only thing between you and owning that house is your doubt. And so you have this intense focus on doubt. It's interesting. They do have to focus on some of these verses frequently because those are the only verses that say the things they want. The Bible doesn't seem to focus on these things nearly as much as they do. Another characteristic of counterfeit faith is a focus on the idea that God wants you healthy, taken care of financially, protected, and safe. And you think, well, isn't he my dad? I mean, doesn't he want me healthy? Doesn't he want me financially secure, even wealthy? Why wouldn't he want me to be wealthy? One of the quotes, and I'll read that again. It's a, there's a focus on how God wants you to be healthy, taken care of financially, protected, and safe. Here's a quote from some of these uh, preachers. I don't believe that we're supposed to drag ourselves through life defeated and not see God's blessings. Well, don't get me wrong. I... I that sounds like a terrible way to live, right? Now, here's some more. God's dream is that you have an abundance, that you be totally out of debt, pay your house off, pay your credit cards off, and have so much overflow that you can be a blessing to everyone around you. And that sounds good. In fact, it gives you permission not to be selfish about it. I just want to be wealthy enough that I can bless other people, right? Uh, God, here's another one. God is saying nothing is going to happen to you because you have faith. That the fact that you have faith, don't worry, nothing's going to happen to you. Like it's a force field from Star Wars, you know, don't worry about it. Nothing's going to happen to you. Uh, here's another one. It's God's will that you live in prosperity instead of poverty. It's God's will for you to pay your bills and not be in debt. Well, I, that's very reassuring, right? And if you're not praying to ask God to help you pay your bills, I would say you're making a mistake, Right? Uh, just a couple more examples. God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money, to fulfill the destiny he's laid out for us. Like, I guess it needs money. And then finally, why aren't there more Christians enjoying the limitless blessings that faith can produce in their lives? Why? Primarily because we've limited ourselves to this natural realm. You know, you're not focused on spiritual things enough. You're so focused on, on the laws of nature that you're missing out on the capabilities that God is able to do in your life supernaturally. So this focus on not doubting at all. Uh, sorry, this focus on that God wants you healthy and wealthy and secure in your life. That that's uh, one of his chief aims, really. Uh, another characteristic. There's often a lack of focus on God's will and an assumption that it is his will to do all these good things in your life. There's often a lack of focus on God's will, assuming that it is his will to do all these good things in your life now. 
to heal you now in this life, to deliver you now in this life, to protect you now in this life. Not later in the resurrection, but actually to have that rain down on you now. Uh, Verses often read uh, where John writes, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. They're John 1-2. They're John 1-2. Subtle. Notice he didn't say, Beloved, you will prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. He said, I pray that you may. Have you ever prayed for your children and hope they're doing well? Then you understand what John was, was talking about. Who doesn't want that to happen? Say, brethren, I, I hope your soul prospers, but personally, I'd like to see you see a lot of hard times. I really hope that, you know, hope that uh, actually the bill comes, they, they didn't make it to the water and they cut things off for you. I'd love to see you suffer a little bit. Uh, no, John's a good pastor. He's just thinking of his brother. Man, I hope, I hope everything goes well for you, that God blesses you richly. But is that a promise that you always will? Is that a promise that the closer to God you are, then you will prosper in all things. Your health will prosper in all things. Is it supposed to be that kind of guarantee? Sometimes I've seen this in the lives of my members creep up where they are suffering and they feel that if I'm suffering in this life financially, it must be because I'm sinning. If I still have this health problem, it must be because I'm sinning. And they torture themselves. And what they don't see is they've been infected by just a little bit of this counterfeit faith. Yes, there are people who suffer financially because they're sinning. And you bet, my health has suffered when I have sinned, you know, and I've just disregarded my health and done something stupid. And the next morning, it's like, ugh. It was not over drinking, by the way. I've, one I haven't actually been able to check off and don't plan to. Uh, but still, you stayed up too light and, de- and you decide it was 3 o'clock in the morning. You know what would be great right now? Ice cream, ice cream, you know, so then you do it. Oh, yeah, I got a job. I got to get up. So anyway, yes, sometimes you do suffer for your sin. Absolutely. But these purveyors of this counterfeit faith make too strong a connection with physical success and protection and health and wealth and spiritual conditions that it, it, it eats on people on the inside. And this is one we need to be careful with, for instance. And most of us are familiar with this, but we also hear it from these purveyors of counterfeit faith. What is our understanding of it? In Exodus, where we read, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the eternal who heals you. From Exodus 15 and verse 26. We have to understand, it is true that living God's way of life brings remarkable, astonishing blessings. We should be a healthier people for following these things. God did long to bless Israel with good health in connection with their keeping his laws. But is that a guarantee individually for all of us that we will never experience Ill health. Like, for instance, one of the things God put on Egypt was blindness by taking their light away from them. Is that our guarantee that if you actually follow God's laws, you will never be blind? I have known a lot of converted blind people. We have to keep these things in a perspective, but you'll see these verses used by some of these individuals. That it's always God's will. In fact, one guy was talking, I think using Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, and said, you know, some guy, sometimes God will deliver you from the fire and other times God will make you fireproof. Man, that's good stuff. I wish I'd have thought of that. You know, <laughs> I, wish I, I wish I had, except history has taught us, no, sometimes God lets Nero actually set you on fire. And that's that example of you needing that $20 of faith and not having it. 
And because it paints the stuff that feels good and sounds good, that's the picture it's showing you when faith is larger than that. Uh, another sign, counterfeit faith, it's lots of big talk and slogans, but when you plumb the details, the substance tends to be lacking. Lots of big talk and slogans, but when you plumb for details, the substance is lacking. And these slogans sound great. And as short, choppy things, they're not necessarily all wrong. Uh, the first one, for instance, faith says it before it sees it. Faith says it before it sees it. Well, that's actually true, right? Once you have the evidence, it's not faith anymore. You have the evidence. Mr. Weston has a wonderful article in several LCN magazines ago where he talks about Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. And how people tend to get it confused and not actually read it for what it says. I highly recommend that, uh, that particular article. Uh, faith doesn't walk on eggshells, right? The righteous are bold as a lion. Faith doesn't walk on eggshells. Okay, well, that's true to a certain extent. But what are you trying to sell with that? What's the larger picture? Faith activates God. Fear activates the enemy. Sounds pretty good. It's hard not to read some of these with a thick southern accent, just so you know. Faith activates God. You know, because uh, that's often how it's delivered in some of these mega churches, it seems. God will dare to do the impossible in your life if you dare to step across the faith line. <laughs> that was kind of corny. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's a slogan. But how many of us have faced it, perhaps? Let's say you're dealing with uh, diabetes. Is God big enough to heal your diabetes? Well, yeah. But what are you, what are you, what are you trying to tell me with that? Right? Is God big enough to heal your cancer? Is God big enough to make you walk again? Is God big enough to restore the use of your arm or even to restore? Yeah, he, he is. But what are you trying to sell me when you say that? It's interesting. You know, someone comes up, a minister, one of these guys and says, you know, is, do you believe God is big enough to heal your cancer? And if he's wearing glasses, you say, well, don't you believe he's big enough to heal your nearsightedness, right? I think it's kind of a lower bar, right, you know, than I think what I'm, what I'm wrestling with. But it sounds great. It sounds encouraging, right, because it's true. God is so much bigger than all of our afflictions put together. He is. But there's other things to consider as well. Just a couple more. I want to dive into some examples. Counterfeit faith proponents sometimes use faith as an excuse for foolhardiness, sometimes even invoking a weird sort of fatalism. As counterfeit faith proponents sometimes use faith as an excuse for foolhardiness, sometimes invoking a weird sort of fatalism. And again, it's not that it's not true. It's just that depending on the context, it's often meaningless. For example... And I've actually said this myself, so confess, you know. And it's true, so it's not, it's not a lie. You know, if God says it's time for me to die, no one can save me. And if God wants me alive, no one can kill me. That's true. What does it mean, right? I mean, what is it, what are you actually saying? Are you trying to convince me to take some actions because you've said that? Because that's a lot of fatalism. You know, if your son comes and says, oh, mom, dad, I, I cut my hand on an old can on the playground. 
Well, son, if God wants you to be infected, ain't nothing I can do to stop it. If God wants to heal it, he'll take care of it. Slap that band-aid out of your hand. What are you? Don't you have any faith? How dare you doubt? Isn't God bigger than the bacteria in there, right? It's one thing when truly it's a matter of obeying God and you're before a government with the power to kill you and to take on that mindset. But it's often deployed in a way to just dismiss actual legitimate questions and use some propaganda to get someone to take a particular action. You know, buying insurance for your house. Oh, God wants somebody to break in. They're going to do it. But if he doesn't want them to, he can send a legion of angels chase it. Well, that's great. Can you afford the insurance, right? Can you get you to think about it? I mean, still, is there still something prudent you should do? Too often it's deployed in the service of things that the preacher doesn't want to do or wants to do or to fend off questions about something that he has said disagreeable. And it's a shallow picture of faith. Serves no one. The last one I'll mention is that in the end, counterfeit faith possesses a sort of focus on you. It's subtle. It's subtle at times, but when you really dig into it, and if you've known people that, that preach it long enough, and I, I was in a situation when I was in my 20s, and I knew people that preached it for years, so I'm very familiar with it. It's very much a focus on you. Whereas fundamentally, real faith is a focus on God. There's a lot of God talk as if he is the center of the faith you're talking about. But in the end, it's really more about achieving your dreams and the status of life you want to be in. On Facebook, it's a great way to virtue signal to other people about how amazing and faithful you are. Now, don't get me wrong. Now everyone's about, oh, great, I did that post the other day. I bet he saw it and he just thinks I'm a giant hypocrite. No, I'm not saying that. It's also good to encourage other people on Facebook, right? It is. But too often, we're just so ready out there to kind of, if we, if we really examine ourselves, are we doing it because we're trying to uplift other people? Are we doing it because we're tooting our own horn? If we can answer that question honestly and get the right, that's, that's great. I'm not trying to say it's bad. I want everybody's here great now. I'm going to go back and delete every post on Facebook, you know, that I ever made, you know, talking about, I'm not trying to say that. At the same time, there is that temptation out there to do it because it's not a declaration of, hey, you know, people, we can do this. It's really more like how faithful I am. And this counterfeit faith often possesses a very subtle focus on you when it's not actually a focus where it needs to be. Let's look at some biblical examples. Turn to Mark chapter 14. There are examples that contradict much of what we've just said and help to focus us on the fact that faith is richer and deeper and more profound than what counterfeit faith has to offer. Here in Mark chapter 14, we have one of the several accounts of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. And here he is praying before God, before he is about to be crucified. In Mark chapter 14... I'm just going to read straight through it at first and then come back and comment. Starting in verse 32 of Mark 14. We read, Then they came to a place which was called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. 
Verse 34, and he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little further and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went and prayed and spoke the same words. He repeated that request more than once. That's important for something we'll talk about a little bit later on. Let me ask you, it seems a preposterous question because it is. Did Jesus Christ lack faith? If you think he did, raise your hand. Uh, no, no, this would be a very terrible place to do that. Maybe you're new. Maybe you think that he did. No, Jesus Christ is the definition of faith in his life and, and his examples. It's actually his faith we long to have in us, that we're asking God to give us and to grow in us is the faith of Jesus Christ. But if we go by the pronouncements of the preachers and, and those who, who tend to proffer counterfeit faith, then why did he doubt why didn't he just speak it into existence? Why didn't he claim it? God, protect me from this. God, find another way. He didn't. In fact, verse 33, he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be encouraged, saying, if God decides I'm going to die, I'm going to die. If God says I'll live, I'll live. That's not what it says. He was troubled and deeply distressed. He didn't want to have to go through what he was about to go through. Did he want to fulfill the plan of God? Absolutely. But he was, as we've talked so many times in the living church of God, as we understand that he had divested himself of certain qualities of, of the Godhood in terms of the fullness of God where he was, that he had emptied himself, as Dr. Merrith has explained so many times. And as a man, he's here praying, is there some other way? Is there another way to do this? Do I have to go through this right now at this time? And yet, he says, not my will Yours. He actually gives God a request only to have God say, no, we do need to do this. Didn't Jesus believe all things are possible with God? Well, if all things are possible with God, God, maybe God could have come up with another way. Again, one of those phrases that is treated in such a trite manner that ignores the fact that God has plans and God has purposes. And no, sometimes for God to accomplish his will, not everything is possible. It was not possible for there to be some other way in this case. And he did have to drink of the cup that he was given. God's will is paramount, not ours. This shallow counterfeit faith is very much focused when you find out, when you really, I'm not suggesting you, I'm hoping to say these things so you don't study into it. Uh, I've tried to learn from the benefit of the years I've had riding in buses and cars with some of these people. It's very much on making sure God is aware of your will. I've even heard as, as one, uh, and I respect this man, Matt, he's not in the church, but he's, he's an older man I knew, and was talking about how, you know what, really? God is looking for marching orders from you. Well, you're wrong. You're wrong. God is looking for people who are willing and passionate to take his marching orders. That's a part of what real faith is. Jesus' faith was an obedient consistency that recognized, yes, God can do all things. And I know he's heard my desire. 
And I know that he will do what needs to be done with that desire. In such a way that after the resurrection, when we're all glorified, I will thank him for the choices that he made. Whether his answer was yes or no. Real, substantive faith recognizes that God, God's will plays a part. And that's what we long for above all else. Did Jesus Christ not want to be crucified? Clearly he did. He was not looking forward to being stuck like a bug on a stick and being tortured to death. And yet his faith shone not in his absolute no doubt position that God is going to deliver me from this, but his absolute faith and trust in God such that he would put God's will above all of his own, no matter how far apart sometimes that will might have been. Let's look at another example in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Second Corinthians in chapter 12. We don't know the details. Paul is clearly suffering from some sort of illness or injury. I've heard a lot of speculation as to what this is that Paul might have been suffering from. And I, my position, just so you know, is we're going to find out when we find out. You know, Ryan, I, I, I suspect the percentages of our guesses are going to be uh, pretty high in terms of what's wrong. Personally, this is my speculation, is that there's a reason God doesn't tell us in detail what it is. Because then it's easier for us to read it and put ourselves in Paul's place. It's easier for me to read this passage from Paul and meditate on my own burdens and trials when I don't know what his were. So anyway, here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we'll start in verse 7. We read, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, which God was giving Paul many revelations. He says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, you know, you doubted. And so I just can't do what you're telling me. He didn't say that. He had a different lesson for Paul. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, he says, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now that I recognize it's in my weaknesses that he's building the eternity in me that I long for, then I'm going to boast about those things. Forget whatever it is, you know, a healthier body or whatever. And I can imagine those prayers. If I were Paul, I'd be selling a healthier body Really hardcore, right? It's like, oh God, I've got to be able to do the work, right? I've got to walk everywhere. You haven't let us invent cars yet. I've got to go from place to place or, or whatever it is. And God needed Paul to see a larger picture. And Paul's weakness and infirmity was more beneficial to Paul's eternity than his healing would have been at that time. But really, if he asked without doubting, it just should have happened, right? I mean, isn't that the way it works? You know, Paul should have said, God, you promised to put on us none of the diseases, right? You owe this to me. It's an obligation. I'm here to force you to heal me now and not in the resurrection because I want it now. You've seen the attorney that has that commercial where people have annuities and they want their money now and they stick their heads out the window. I want my money now. I want my money now. And if you really take them for what they say, these proponents of this counterfeit faith are telling, you know, you tell God, I want it now. I want it now. And they'll say, and be patient, and it'll happen. But that patience sometimes leads all the way to the resurrection. 
And they don't talk about that quite as much because it doesn't fit the picture. Did Paul lack faith? That's a ridiculous question. I hope we all agree. That's a ridiculous question. You know, we keep these things in mind. When you start to examine real-life examples, it reminds me, of all things, Garth Brooks understood. I'm not saying he's a spiritual genius, right? Uh, he's not. I'm not recommending his songs either. Uh, some of them are murderous and adulterous and terrible. But there's the one song he has that i got to admit I'll confess that I do like it. I'm kind of worried now because I haven't read the lyrics in a long time. So if you find some place he says, and Christmas trees are great, then, you know, forgive me. But he's got this song, Unanswered Prayers, right? Where he talks about, you know, you pray for things and he's, he's looking at his family and his wife and thinking, man, this is, a, I actually prayed for someone else, you know, and something else and a different plan. And, he, and, he's, and he's expressing a gratitude that God said no at those times. And yet, you know, you listen to this kind of shallow faith that no, you ask in confidence without doubting. This is the woman I want. This is the one I'm going to get. God, and they'll tell stories about that. I knew she was mine. I knew God had given to me. He, he whispered into my ear. This is the one. You hear a lot of that talk from some of those, not all of them, but some of them. God is always telling them to do things. God told me this. God told me that. God told me this. You hear it from them more than you'll read it in the Bible. God is not the genie in the Disney movie Aladdin. And he serves a purpose in our life that is far larger, broader, and deeper than granting us our wishes. Jesus had a wish when he went into the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, it doesn't mean every time you kneel and talk to God, you have to say, God, if it's your will, please do this. God, if it's your will, please do that. Wouldn't that be creepy if your kids ever did that? Say, hey, Dad, can I borrow the keys? If it is thy will, right? <laughs> oh, Dad, you know, I'm like a do- $10 short. You know, I just need $10 to be able to fix the tire, and I'll, you know, I'll pay you back later. If it be thy will, Father. It's like, ah, creepy kid, here's a hundred. Just go away. What's wrong with you, right? But what God is looking for is that attitude in us. That must be there. When we go to God and ask for healing, there should be an expectancy that God absolutely does plan to heal us, even if it might be in the resurrection. But that God does long for us. And when you're 80 billion years in the resurrection, perfectly healed with a body beyond compare that you would never have known in this life, then this will seem a blip. But there does need to be no doubt that he absolutely can. But there also must be a recognition that if it's his will, because if some reason he decides not to in this life, it's only because he has something larger in mind. And that's faith. You know, if I were to ask you to turn to the verse that says you will never die of sickness, what verse would that be? Hopefully you don't have one. Now I'm watching to see who's flipping. If I ask you to turn to the verse that says you will never die of persecution, what verse would that be? If I ask you to turn to the verse that says you'll never die at the hands of your enemies, what verse would that be? Or if I ask you the verse that says, and this is a tricky one, I bring it up for cause, you'll never die young. What verse is that? Because you might think of one in that regard. And I can actually think of some verses in all of these regards that some would proffer. But often, for instance, we'll talk about the commandment, honor your father and mother, which Paul highlights is the first commandment with promise. And then we think of maybe Christians we've known who seem faithful and converted and young. 
who still died. And it needs to be a warning to us not to treat these things in a shallow way. On one hand, it is absolutely true. If you do want to live a long life, disobeying and rebelling against your parents is a stupid choice to make. And yes, that is packed into this verse in many ways. Honor your father and mother, right? It's a good idea. It's not just a good idea. It's the law, right? Honor your father and mother. You will be blessed. It it gives God an opportunity to bless you. In that regard, but we also have to remember this was he was communicating to a people at this time. And it is interesting because Israel was eventually kicked out of the land. They completely lost respect for God. But where does loss of respect for God tend to start? It tends to start with disrespect for parents. And it grows. I remember uh, actually Jonathan McNair teaching in a uh, camp years ago, talking about how uh, God gives us the family to practice our relationships with all of society. You disrespect your parents, you start disrespecting broader authorities, and it just grows and grows and grows, and eventually it's an utter disrespect for God. The moment, you know, I I think if you trace back Israel's time, I just don't see them going back to like, oh, we were just super honoring of our parents, the next thing you know, we're out of the land. That's a progression. But that said, we have to be careful how we treat these things. The scripture has to be treated with respect and make sure that we don't turn it into the promises we want but understand what the promises are actually saying. You know, it's interesting. There's a difference between saying, don't be afraid of getting cancer because God's got this and he'll protect you and keep you healthy. And saying, don't be afraid of getting cancer because God can protect you. But even if he chooses to allow it, you are truly in the best hands you could possibly be. And there's no other entity in the universe you can more trust with the outcome of your desires. Counterfeit faith reminds me of something famously called the three-dog defense. I don't know if any of you have heard it before. Uh, the three-dog defense. It goes something like this, and I hope I pull it off. But uh, I, as, as someone who enjoys logic and the rest, it's something I enjoy. It's a certain fallacy. Um, let's say you're uh, jogging along, and a dog bites you. And you look, and you saw at the corner of your eye it running from a person. And after biting you, the dog runs back to that person. And so you go to the guy and say, hey, your, your dog bit me. And he says, I don't have a dog. And if I did, uh, he wouldn't bite people. And if my dog did bite people, he's not the one that bit you. The three-dog defense, where you keep moving the goalposts, right, uh, because you're just really, you just want responsibility for your dog biting somebody. So it starts, I don't have a dog. Uh, well, we can do that with faith if we're not careful. And, and often sincerely do it. But we need to be mindful of what it reflects. I have some who, I've known some who proffer this kind of faith uh, to say, oh, you know, God will protect you from getting sick. Oh, but even if you do get sick, well, God will miraculously heal you. Oh, but even if you still have to go to the hospital uh, and you get better from all the treatments, well, it was really God who, who did that. Even though you took the exact amount of time it normally takes, you know, for the treatments. And then if you die, well, you know, it was, it was your time. Well, there's little seeds of truth in all those things. For instance, Mr. Greer put it so well at the council meeting once. He believes that doctors can treat to a certain extent, but only God can truly heal. Right? And I believe that. I believe that. But there's depths to be plumbed there that too often we skip over with our shallow comments. And those who proffer that kind of faith do that moving of the goalposts often. 
where they'll make these bold declarations to their mega churches and such. But then you see things happen in their lives and their congregations that don't match that at all. You know, one of these, I won't mention the name, but one of these fellows, he uh, uh, had a, a wife that ended up having, I can't remember, it was, a, it was a calamity of multiple things in a row. There was cancer and there was multiple strokes, etc., and then she died. And she wasn't that old. And I'm thinking, well, why didn't he just claim God would heal the stroke? Why didn't he just claim that? That's what he's saying all the time. In fact, he told people, this particular guy I have in mind, during when they were losing jobs because of COVID, he said, I don't care if you lost your job, you send your money in. There's no money, right? Because their, their word for tithe isn't like ours, 10% of an increase. It's just the money you're supposed to send me to pay for my, my boats, you know, and the house and, and all the rest. And he said, oh, send it in. You know, God will reward you for that. You know, you got a credit card or whatever. You know, God will pay that back. But then when it doesn't, they have another excuse and another excuse. They tend to move the goalposts. I'm not saying we don't give God praise for the things he does. If you ever do end up going into a hospital, end up staying there for the exact amount of time, etc., I hope you will praise him for whatever he allowed to happen and for whatever mercies he may have shown you in that hospital that you wouldn't have even known about. You know how many people go to hospital, go to the under-prescribed treatment, and because of this mistake or that mistake or whatever, they don't come out again? I hope that we praise God for those things. But then if it doesn't turn out that way and we're there for longer, I hope we keep that in mind. I, I, I knew a lady once who was in hospital for an extra amount of time. She went in, probably didn't need to, but she did have a certain concern. It was worth checking. And while she was there, she ended up getting the flu. This was years ago. Uh, because the lady who drew her blood was feeling sick that day and came in and shouldn't have. In fact, after, I was actually there in uh, the thing when she took her blood. I was there and then I left. She said, oh, after the lady left, she goes, you know, my family, you know, I'm not feeling that well today. So why did you just, you just literally took this woman's blood, right? I mean, quarantine yourself. Sure enough, she came down with the flu and had to, she's an elderly woman, uncomfortable anyway, and had to be there for like another two weeks when she shouldn't have been in the hospital anyway. And just so happened during that time in two weeks, someone was wheeled in and somehow found out she was religious and asked her, hey, have you ever heard of Herbert W. Armstrong? And she wouldn't have been there. If it hadn't have been for the flu from the nurse who actually whatever, you know, God does work in these things. But again, we have to understand he's working a will in the world. Uh, let's turn to another example. Uh, turn to Matthew chapter 14. Here's the example of Peter walking on the water. Powerful story if there ever were one. I have so many questions I can't wait to ask Peter. And by the time actually we're there, I can experience it for myself, but I'd still rather talk to him about it first. In Matthew chapter 14, we have the tale where Jesus Christ sends his disciples into the boat, into the Sea of Galilee. They get out there, and then a storm arises, and he's not with them, and the water is choppy and terrible and terrifying. And they look out, and they see Jesus walking to them on the water. Uh, it says in verse 25, Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost! And they cried out for fear. By the way, don't judge the disciples. For that, You know, if you went to the hall and saw some weird apparition, let's be honest, there would be a percentage of us, that, oh, it's a ghost, it'd be the first thing we think, right, for some of us, maybe not me, you know, but some of you, uh, oh, it's a ghost, you know, and oh, wait, wait, no, I've been taught about these things, God's ministry's taught us, the Bible says, you know, there's a certain thing, it might be a demon or whatever, but it's not the ghost of my second grade teacher, or whatever the case it is that you're, that you're seeing, but still, so it's, they're shocked, they're stressed, and they say this, and... 
we see in verse 27, immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And so he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I have seen this online and I have heard multiple messages talking about this. That if you understand the secrets of this, this is how you learn to walk on water. You want to be able to cast mountains into the sea. You just need to get this. And as Mr. Ames, uh, who said, I need to, I really want to verify with him uh, while he was here and I didn't have the opportunity. And I don't know if, uh, if he's here. But he had made this comment uh, some time ago and he talked about how for years, because people who do this have been around for a long time. And they'll often say, hey, you know, I'm going to give you the secret to walking on water. I'm going to give you the secret to casting mountains into the sea. And he said something to this effect. You know, if someone says that, ask for a list of the mountains they have cast into the sea. Ask for a list of the bodies of water they have walked on. And if they have no such list, then you can dismiss that and then try to figure out what they're really selling. Now, sometimes it's just a matter of overreach. But in this, what I find is, at least in most, in fact, I want to say I saw it in one account online, and I I appreciated that someone else noticed. It wasn't someone actually in the church. But there's a missing ingredient in this that most who are selling counterfeit faith tend to skip. And let me read it right now, skipping that ingredient. Please, this is going to sound terrible, but please don't read your Bible while I read mine in this. Because you're going to see it, and you're going to go, ha-ha, you know, I got it. It'll destroy the effect. So at least for this once... A minister behind the lectern is saying, don't look at your Bible. But we'll come back to it in a second. So they see Jesus. And some of you, I know you're not going to be able to help yourself. You're going to look. So he says, be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And he said to Peter, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now, what I skip? I skip verse 28. After Jesus identifies himself and tells them not to be afraid, Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. That is the secret ingredient to this. Because let me ask you, how? what if it had played differently? What if Peter just jumped out? Woohoo! We're going to walk on water and it just jumped out. It didn't ask to be. Well, God preserved this fact for a reason. God doesn't waste his words. His words are valuable. He made sure through the years we would always remember that Peter didn't just jump out of the boat. He asked the Lord, if it's you, command me to come out. I see the disciples saying, Peter, woohoo, and just kind of plunk, you know, and that would be it. But also, what if it had been the other way? If he said, Lord, command me to come out. And if Jesus had said no, well, I'm coming anyway. Kerplunk. People don't often consider that. We treat casting mountains aside as if it's it's something that, oh, the power to do that. But I'll be honest, if I just decide for kicks, we're in, in North Carolina going on a hike, and it's like, you know what, I got faith. I'm going to cast this mountain into the ocean, really impress some people, really Spice up the work, right? People are going to notice. Who cast that mountain? Well, that was me. I'm on a telecast. You should watch it, right? And yet, you know, it would be a very different scenario if God's people were fleeing somehow 
and the road, kind of like the road out of Egypt, led to this body of water and led us to a mountain and there was no way around and there was no way over and yet we know that God needs us to go through. It's a very different scenario. We have to treat these things as the rich, profound things they are and not as shallow little slogans like purveyors of counterfeit faith tend to do. Another example, turn to James chapter 2. This one tends to come up. As you're turning there, I do want to make a comment about that. It's the previous example. When God speaks of acts of faith and of people filled with faith, often God's focus isn't about the amazing, miraculous things that somehow they accomplished. It's rather their level of obedience. That's what impresses God. And we actually see this ignored by some. We should recognize it. We should be different in James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And I'll just read a couple of verses. Because these are often the verses that purveyors of counterfeit faith will use. James chapter 2 and verse 14, for instance. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Unless there are works of faith associated with you. Well, then your faith is dead. Let's jump down. It's important to skip stuff in this case. Uh, to verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And purveyors of counterfeit faith will talk about there must be works of faith. You need to be doing these things that show you have great faith and putting things totally in his hands. And they speak of works of faith as things attached to God doing miracles in your life. And somehow James didn't get the memo because that's literally not anything that he's talking about in James chapter 2. In fact, show me the miracle he's talking about people. And actually, if you read the context in James chapter 2, starting in verse 14, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Verse 15, the next verse. It doesn't take energy to go to the next verse. Uh, Just keep reading. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. There are those who want to sell this counterfeit faith to you and try to talk about these works as somehow great, miraculous works of faith. And that's literally not what James is talking about. James is talking about acts of obedience. He didn't say pray and multiply loaves and fishes for your brother. He just said feed your brother. If you have a sandwich, give him half a sandwich. Give him the whole sandwich. You see him destitute and in need of clothes. Go get him some clothes. It is interesting. If I say two phrases to you, you might think of them. Well, I want to preface it too much. If I say, man, that fella is full of faith. And I speak of someone else and say, boy, that guy is really faithful. Now, you may not be like me, and that's fine, you know, good for you. Uh, You may not be like me, but when I hear someone described as full of faith, I tend to think of them as they just trust God. Like, you know, maybe it's it's a minister and there's more healings maybe in his ministry than I've seen in mine or something like that, that he just he just truly believes In such a way that maybe that guy could move mountains. He's full of faith. But I hear someone described as faithful. 
I think of their obedience. How when they're in trials and difficulty, even to their own personal hurt, they still obey. They do the right thing. They obey the commandments. They seek the will of God. Why do I feel like those are two different things when the form of the word tells us they are intimately connected? If you're faithful, it's because you're full of faith. The reason we tend to think of those things as different is because they're often sold as different things. Here James talking about works of faith, and yet he's not talking about miracles. He's not talking about majestic divine deliverance that can be explained no other way. He's talking about doing the right thing and feeding your brother and sister. Shallow, counterfeit faith tends to focus on the one. And interestingly enough, the Bible doesn't. Yes, there's miracles performed by faithful people in the Bible, but it tends to focus on obedience and the obedience of those people. Last couple of examples. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. You know, if you're reading Hebrews chapter 11, it's kind of the hall of fame of the faithful. Sort of the faith hall of fame. It's an encouraging, passionate passage uh, talking about these remarkable individuals and how, I don't know about you, but I would long to be any of these people. Right? I would long to have, have, to be able to be listed in a chapter like this. I mean, don't raise your hands, but how many of us would want to live the kind of life where afterwards, God says, you know what, I'm going to make Hebrews chapter 11, part 2. Because I want your name to be on that list. Right? And when it comes to counterfeit faith, it's so easy to focus on, yeah, you know, lions' mouths being shut and the enemies being defeated and all the rest. And then you get to verse 35 and there's a shift. And yet the hall of fame continues. You haven't walked all the way down the hall. You haven't looked at every painting. You haven't looked at every statue of every hero of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 35 starts off encouraging. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. So others had trial of mockings and scourgings. Yes, and of chains and imprisonment. Well, I guess they didn't claim God's deliverance in their lives. They must have lacked faith. Except they're in the hall of fame. It says in verse 37, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. I think, oh, being destitute. Well, they, they clearly haven't read uh, that it's God's will for them to live in prosperity instead of poverty. If only, if only they'd have known. Or maybe because God was accomplishing something larger so that literally thousands of years later, those of us suffering can look at their example and say, God, make me that. Given the choice, whatever your plan is, I get a million dollar check tomorrow that solves all my problems or I get recorded with the faithful for how I dealt with my prosperity. You know I'd love the check. I don't have to tell you again. I'd love the check. But Father, this is my desire more than that. Counterfeit faith focuses on the one and doesn't often focus enough on the other. You'll press them and they'll eventually get there. But sure enough, eventually they bounce back to the other. It says in verse 38, 
of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these obtained a good testimony through faith. What is the key to their testimony? Not the miracles that they accomplished, but that through it all they were faithful. Through it all they obeyed. They didn't lose sight of the vision that God gave them. And it wasn't of their prosperity. It was of the kingdom of God to come. That's the testimony they gained. Not that God worked wonders at all of their hands. For some of them, it was that they gave God a good death. And to long to be a hero of faith, the shallowness of counterfeit faith is not going to get us there. Because we don't get to pick which part of Hebrews 11 we're going to be in. Final example as we wrap up. It's one of my personal favorites. It's in the book of Daniel. In Daniel in chapter 3. And I do see this one commented on a lot. I think I gave you a quote from one of the, one of the preachers, the fireproof quote. Daniel chapter 3. And if you know the tale, if you don't know the tale, you, you have really missed out. Uh, you need to read it. If you're new and Daniel, you didn't know the book, there was a book called Daniel. Uh, it's, it's in there and it's worth reading this example, but I'll just sum it up. You have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are three Jewish boys, a part of the captivity, but it had been honored. God allowed them to rise into various positions of authority. Were generally loved by the king, you know, in some kind of way, appreciated them. And yet they had this giant idol made. And was going to have all of Babylon bow before the idol. And if they refused to bow, there was a giant furnace that they would get thrown into alive, to be burned alive. And eventually, for these fellows, they made it so hot that the people going to throw them in actually burst into flame themselves. That's hot, right? That's hot. So we read in Daniel chapter 15, Nebuchadnezzar asked these fellows, You know what? Look, I'm here. Who's going to save you from this fiery furnace if you do not bow down? They answered him. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand. Now, understand at this point, we'll see it in the next verse. They weren't saying that God would do it. They weren't saying that they knew he would. They're simply answering his question. What God is there, Nebuchadnezzar asked, who could possibly save you from me? And say, so, you know what? Our God can. He's not Baal. He's not Ra. He's not all these others. He is the real God. And we guarantee you he is capable of doing it. There is no power or wealth you have in this world that will outshine what he is able to do. And then you get to verse 19. But if not, because they don't know. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Mr. Gwynn used to say it so well. He said, uh, <laughs> so you know Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego? They hadn't read the book of Daniel, Right? They didn't know how it was going to turn out. They had no idea how it was going to turn out. They were living the book of Daniel. It was recording what they did. 
And they did not know the outcome. It goes against everything that this counterfeit faith talks about. You know the outcome ahead of time. No doubting. Absolutely no doubting. Then how could they dare doubt and think they're somehow showing a good example for God? Because they had real faith. And real faith commits the results into God's hands. And expresses its desire but dare not dictate the outcome for him. When he may have something larger in mind. As far as they knew... This could have been their example. Maybe there wasn't going to be any salvation in this. And they made sure their last words were the right ones. If he does not save us, if we get tossed in here and we are burned to a crisp, you need to know that even facing that possibility, we will not worship your gods. That is faith. And that's the faith. That God is longing to build in us. The purveyors of counterfeit faith will give lip service to this. You press verses like this. Oh yeah, of course. You know, sometimes things don't work out, etc. But you got to go and take them to deeper places than they normally do. Because they're trying to sell you something that is far more shallow. And is not what we need. It's a kind of faith, if you will. But it's not the faith of Jesus Christ. You know, we heard the announcement about Adventure Camp, uh, and I hope those who are going are excited. That's not for me. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, as he mentioned all that's like, yeah, are there volunteers? Can we raise our hands not to go? You know, that would be me. That's not my kind of thing. But if you, you know, if you do go on these Adventure Camps, I encourage you to consider if that's your cup of tea, you get to see some beautiful vistas. There are parts of the earth that few people get to see, and Adventure Camp provides those opportunities. And if you'd imagine, you know, showing up, and here you are on this, you show up just over a mountain pass, And you discover a lake surrounded by mountains and trees. And it's the most beautiful thing you think you've ever seen in your life. How can places like this exist in nature? And the water looks deep and dark blue and cold as all get out. But you're as hot as all get out and sweaty and stinky. You said, that's for me. That's what I want. And so you go and you desire, you're going to jump in that and you're going to wash, you're going to bathe and you're going to play. And so you're making your way down, you're taking off your backpack and the stuff you don't want to get soaked and you start off and it's a little shallow at the edge, right? Because you're just wading in. So you're trying and you're running, you're trying to get out and then the next thing you know, you're standing out in the deep blue part and you're still just like half an inch in. And then you realize as you look around, this isn't a real lake at all. It's literally half an inch deep from side to side and front to back. Someone has painted it deep, dark blue and filled about half an inch of water on the top to give the illusion of a lake. Not satisfying in the end, but definitely easier to walk on water in a case like that. Brethren, reject all offers of counterfeit faith and seek only the real thing, the faith of Jesus Christ.